You are listening to Take Back the Fight, a podcast that explores modern feminism in Canada and the digital age. I'm your host, Nora Loretto, and this podcast is based on a book that I wrote with the same name. This podcast is brought to you by Fernwood Publishing, and we are a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network. Episode 10, Feminists and Power. In 2015, Justin Trudeau announced to the world that he's a feminist, and he received a ton of accolades, support, positive words, think pieces, even journalists that called him your feminist prime minister boyfriend. He had just been elected. The liberals had kicked out the conservatives after nine years of rule that was marked by very clear anti-feminist policies. Justin Trudeau didn't have to do anything to look very feminist. All he had to do was restore Canada's international aid funding to organizations that support abortion and say that he supports abortion. Those are probably like really where the bar was at in terms of how feminist he needed to demonstrate himself. But he made this pronouncement before even doing either of those things. He made the announcement when he unveiled his cabinet, which was the first moment that he took the spotlight as prime minister to unveil the equal number of men and women he had appointed. His act of appointing an equal number of men and women was his feminism, and he used that to declare that this would be a new era, an era where feminism was not a dirty word, was actually a word that a male politician could assume and proudly wear. And he got the political mileage out of it that they wanted to get. Remember that people were tired of Stephen Harper. The nine years of rule under Stephen Harper were very difficult. And every time there was opposition to the power of Stephen Harper, something happened and that power dissipated, whether that was uh, feminists fighting against the closure of Status of Women Canada offices, which was one of the first moves that Stephen Harper did in 2006, or whether that was Canadians pouring into the street protesting what was then a relatively unknown political procedure called prorogation. Justin Trudeau was finally the hopes of an entire set of people who had spent almost a decade fighting against the immovable Stephen Harper. The word feminist was thrown around a lot. And it wasn't just thrown around by Justin Trudeau. There were other people that assumed the mantle as well. There were conservatives who were engaging in political discourses and decisions that were clearly anti-feminist that announced they were feminist and did so saying, who are you to deny my self-identification? There were also feminists, of course, on the other side of the political spectrum in the NDP. And the ability that they had to push the government forward was always limited by the ability any opposition party has to push a government into one direction or the other. And so the the Trudeau era, where it was supposed to be the opposite of what we saw under Stephen Harper, ended up being an era where the word feminism was rendered more or less meaningless. And so that's what this episode looks at. What does a feminist opposition to power look like? And just how far can feminist politics take 
any single politician, regardless of the party that they operate within, to change public policy to become more feminist. All of the episodes in this podcast accumulate here, which is not how I wrote about it in the book. In fact, this chapter actually was the first chapter that I wrote. I thought it would be very easy and made a lot of sense to trace just how little feminist power so-called feminists have in government to try and demonstrate that it's actually through social movement organizing power outside of the partisan arena that we can make sure that things like feminist policy or anti-racist policy or anti-ableist policy to be possible. Social movements through the discussions they have, the debates that then creates knowledge, the the building of, of structures that allow work to happen in between moments of importance or, or flashpoints, all of this then helps to create a whole set of leaders who can stay within the feminist movement and, and perform their leadership in many different ways, or they can go on into formal political organizing in partisan politics and try and throw their feminist weight around there. But in the last years, since Justin Trudeau became prime minister, the limits of the individual feminist as a confrontation to power have become very, very obvious. Now, throughout this episode, I'm going to be talking about power. And of course, there's lots of different kinds of power that we might be imagining as feminists. There's power in the streets, and there's power in our movements, and then there's political power. There's corporate power. This episode is going to talk about political and then its best friend, corporate power, and how feminists who decide to seek positions within this kind of power, no matter how much of a feminist they are, find that the structures that they're seeking to change are immovable by a single person. In Justin Trudeau, we have a prime minister that has barely done anything that we could objectively call feminist. Sure, he's someone who doesn't seem to hate women, certainly not in the way that perhaps we might say about previous prime ministers. And sure, he made some minor reforms to Harper's agenda. But if we look at many measures, whether that's abortion rights and access in New Brunswick, where the only private clinic that offers abortion is still under threat, and Justin Trudeau has not done enough to intervene, or if we look at the rise of gender-based violence during this pandemic and look at the role that the federal government played in making people less safe through their exclusionary programs like the CERB, cutting off anybody that didn't make more than $5,000 in 2019, or the paltry sums that they gave to shelters who were expected to not only do their regular work, but do the regular work in a smaller amount of space because, of course, as residential facilities, they needed to cut out some of their beds, move some people to hotels so that the people could social distance, but then also deal with a wave of gender-based violence triggered by the stresses of the pandemic. Or we can look at women's economic status in Canada and ask ourselves, what exactly have the Liberals done to improve women's or non-binary people's participation in the economy? In fact, what the liberals have done is they have flattened the experience of women. I'm using air quotes and waving my arms in the air to say that this is a huge open group 
they flatten this experience into being one that is tied directly to motherhood, ignoring the fact that the majority of women and non-binary people are not in the position to give birth or cannot give birth or are too young or too old or whatever. (laughs) Somehow the federal liberals have reconstructed what feminist struggle is into being entirely wrapped up in childcare, which is a very interesting sleight of hand. And so while Canada is on the precipice of finally getting a national childcare program, which is a long time in the making and something that people really, really, really need, primarily parents of young children who may or may not be women, they've used this issue to obscure from all of the other issues that feminists have for decades called for changes on. No government in and of itself is going to be feminist unless it grows directly from the grassroots of feminist organizing. Unless you have a party where most of the leadership were feminist activists involved in street-level protests and service provision, and they formed from a social movement into a political party, no political party is going to have feminism in its core. And that includes the NDP, even though it's full to the brim of feminists. That's because feminist self-identity is not enough to move power. And so when feminists get into power, either they need to have feminist opposition placed upon them to insist that they keep their promises or continue to move in the directions that feminists have called for for years, or else they risk not actually being able to fulfill a mandate and use feminism as publicity, feminism as PR. And if we look at governments all across Canada, by and large, that's what we see. We see governments that have feminists located within them. Hell, they might even have a feminist prime minister. But if the pressure isn't on them to insist that the policies that they enact are feminist, then nothing is going to change. And in the last 30 years, the power that feminists have to be able to do this kind of work has been very compromised. And it's not through a lack of trying or a lack of will or a lack of political orientation from among the feminists who are doing the work. It's thanks to a combination of overstressed, overworked, frontline feminist activists who are doing the day-to-day service provision as it increases thanks to austerity and gutting public services, as I discussed in a previous episode. It's also thanks to the fact that it's very, very difficult to fight patriarchy when you find yourself a member of the patriarchy. Because it is not going to be the case that a feminist liberal party comes out of nowhere and then all of a sudden is no longer the patriarchy. The patriarchy, to be dismantled, literally means dismantled. We need to literally dismantle laws and dismantle ways that parliament does things. And until that happens, it's the feminist movements that need to keep up the fight to shame feminists for feminists in power for selling out or not doing everything they can and and putting their feet to the fire to then make noise within their caucus to force governments into action. Because as we know, certainly looking back at the last many years of the Trudeau administration, Behind closed doors, women like Selena Caesar Chavan or Jody Wilson-Raybould have said that it's little more than a PR stunt from someone like Justin Trudeau to be the feminist. 
And if he's treating feminist members of cabinet or feminist members of his party disrespectfully and marginalizing them and pushing them out, then we can clearly see the limits that exist, certainly within his party, of the feminist politician. To think through the ways in which feminists should be approaching power today, I thought it was very interesting to see how feminists in the past have used their collective power to influence, inform, and force changes of federal governments gone by. In Take Back the Fight, I write about an interesting constitutional struggle that marked the feminist movement in the 1980s and that demonstrated the power that feminists had to force certain kinds of conversations to happen and stop certain kinds of decisions from happening. In 10,000 Roses, Judy Rebick writes about an organization called the Canadian Advisory Council on the Status of Women with the acronym CACS, C-A-C-S-W. This was a government committee that was established after the Royal Commission on the Status of Women. And the council was made up of bipartisan appointees who conducted research to help inform the government on making certain changes that the commission suggested, you know, entrenching them into law. In 1981, the president of CACSW was Doris Anderson. Now, if you're a fan of Chatelaine, you know who Doris Anderson is. Uh, If you don't, uh, keep listening. I'm about to say it. She was the former editor of Chatelaine, and Doris edited this magazine understanding that the women reading Chatelaine wanted to hear about politics and feminism as much or maybe even more that they wanted to read about the best way to bleach your whites or set the table in a, I don't know, festive kind of way. She was a trailblazer. And as president of the CACSWA, the C-A-C-S-W, she found herself in a fight against the minister responsible for the status of women, who was Lloyd Axworthy. In 1981, Anderson and CACSW called a conference to examine the Constitution. There was a lot of fear among feminists that by repatriating Canada's Constitution, there would be gender inequality written into the Constitution that would be very, very difficult to get changed. Feminist lawyer Mary Lou McFedrin was quoted by Jody Rebick in 10,000 Roses saying, quote, but there was going to be an entrenched charter. And if we set out the process of amending it, we were going to get screwed the same way we'd been screwed by Diefenbaker's Bill of Rights, under which we'd lose every single legal challenge on the basis of either women or Aboriginal identity. The Bill of Rights that she's referring to only ensured equality as the law is administered and not equality under the law. And so it created a situation like this. There was someone named Stella Bliss who had to leave work early due to her pregnancy. And because she had to leave work early due to her pregnancy, she was denied full unemployment insurance benefits. The Supreme Court determined that she hadn't been discriminated against because she was a woman, but instead because she was pregnant and upheld the decision to deny her her leave. Okay, so other people who were pregnant would face similar decisions. Therefore, it was not discriminatory. This decision was eventually overturned in 1989. But the women fighting to have the Constitution um, um, uh, amended in ways that respected women's rights had this at the front of their mind. And they were specifically concerned about sections 15 and 28 of the Charter. 
That was equality rights and the clause that stated not without, notwithstanding anything else in the charter that men and women are considered equal under it. And so CACSW and Doris Anderson call this conference, and the conference is canceled by Lloyd Axworthy. In protest of Axworthy's decision, Anderson quit. A meeting was called on February 14th, 1981, and more than a thousand women participated in it. One day, it was held at the West Block at Parliament Hill, thanks to the involvement of several women MPs. And on day two, it was held at City Hall, thanks to Maud Barlow, who had been working for Ottawa Mayor Marion Dewar at the time. In 10,000 Roses, uh, Pat Hacker was quoted saying the conference was bankrolled by Nancy Ruth, who was a wealthy women's rights activist and, I mean, very wealthy. She comes from old money and a progressive conservative, and she'd go on to be a senator. Um, but also funded by the, the Federation of Women's Teachers, Women Teachers of Ontario. So a really interesting multi-partisan group of people trying to pull together this emergency conference. So a thousand feminists descend on Ottawa to have this discussion in the aftermath of Lloyd Axworthy ca- cancelling their, their conference. In the book, I write this. The conference made national headlines for a week. Journalist Penny Combe wrote about it in her 1983 book, The Taking of 28, Women Challenge the Constitution. And I quote now uh, an academic paper talking about Combe's book, quote, Combe described the episode as an earthquake that proved Canadian women to be a formidable national political force, knocking a cabinet minister out of his status of women portfolio, unquote. That was quoted from a paper by Academics Black and Carbert. The mobilization that uh, CACSW and Doris Anderson managed to to spark and then funded by organizations and individuals that had money to fund something like this ensured that women's place in the Constitution was front and centered. And the concerns that they had that this this inequality entrenched into a charter in the way that the Bill of, of Rights had done this, you know, decades earlier, it didn't come to pass. There were rights granted to women and men, ensuring they were equal under the law and not just under the administration of the law. Now, CACSW folded in 1995. And thinking from 1995 onward, or perhaps maybe from the 2000s onward, I can't really think of a situation where feminists mobilized in a similar way to, to, to take control of a national issue. And instead, what we have is we actually have feminists themselves are the ones holding these positions. So rather than having a Lloyd Axworthy in, this, in the position of Status of Women Canada, you get someone like Marion Monsef, who had a long history of work with the YWCA, someone who very obviously identified as a feminist, or the current minister, Marcy Yen. It really changes the relationship then that feminist activists have with their government when the people they're confronting would also say, wait, 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 I'm a feminist too. It actually takes away the power that that word has and that that movement has and places it into the government themselves, making the arguments based on what is and isn't feminist much more difficult to have. And so rather than having a mass situation where feminists are descending on the House of Commons, instead what you have are, you know, lots of feminist organizations that receive money from the federal government that will find themselves on committees that will be able to try and push things ahead quietly, while the biggest issues remain unchanged, or in some cases, they get worse. 
I love the idea of this spontaneous conference forcing the mostly men who are designing Canada's next constitution to pay attention to them. And the way that politics operated when the patriarchy was like literally those men who just don't have any time or interest in listening to those annoying women versus now where the patriarchy actually includes the very same women who likely three decades ago would have been on the other side. And that contorts and makes it much more difficult for feminists to understand how they are supposed to operate in opposition to power and has actually convinced many feminists that it doesn't make sense to operate in opposition to power at all, that what we need to do is work with power, because if we work with power, we'll be able to get things passed, we'll be able to get our issues heard, and we'll have more success in bringing home some of our victories. This, I think, cuts to the heart of why feminist activism right now is in such a difficult spot. Because we no longer have that us versus them reality of us feminists fighting for X and them people in power, mostly men who are ignoring us, even though the structures are the same, pretty much, even though the voting system is the same that it has always been. And it's based on racism and property ownership and has been systemically excluded women until, you know, until this, well, the last century, I guess, but until 100 years ago. We, those are the same structures, and yet we have convinced ourselves that having feminists in these positions is enough to deliver feminist policies. I hope over the episodes of this podcast, you're coming to understand that it isn't enough, that actually it becomes little more than tokenization when you put feminists into positions like Status of Women Canada or into positions like, you know, the justice minister on the promise that the justice minister is a feminist and therefore laws are going to be changed to be feminist. When you actually look at the record held by these politicians and you realize that, whoa, like Justin Trudeau did not undo most of Stephen Harper's so-called tough on crime legislation. And what impact does that have on women? Well, it means higher levels of incarceration and that disproportionately impacts indigenous women, black women and disabled women. You can also look at the way the federal government has, quote unquote, engaged with reconciliation. And in spite of being the government that called for the national called for the national inquiry on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, look at the progress that they've made on implementing the, the, the recommendations. It's dismal. It's not moving fast enough. And, uh, and Indigenous activists have long decried the lack of priority that the government has been placing on this. And even worse, then they're taking Indigenous children to court. They're taking residential school survivors to court all at the same time while saying, but, you know, we're, we're feminist. We're doing our best. It spins everything around on its head and makes it very confusing for average people to say, wait a minute, if that's feminism, then what are feminists fighting against? They're all on the same side. And this is actually exactly why so much of the far right lumps Justin Trudeau into this whole like, oh, we hate everything about the far left kind of bucket, even though nothing that that government is doing can be considered far left. Even though so much of their feminist approach to politics is deeply cynical and in its cynicism, it means that it disenfranchises people who don't necessarily watch politics that closely, but can feel that there's a cynicism to it. And that tells them that what feminism actually is, isn't 
us coming together, creating services for one another, keeping each other safe, providing food, providing shelter, uh, providing services or access to medical services or whatever to, to keep people safe. But instead, they look at the, at the liberal government and say, well, I don't like what they're doing, so I must not like feminism. I think the best example of this cynical use of feminism by people who are in power in Canada is the way in which Justin Trudeau used something called gender-based analysis plus. That becomes GBA plus for shorthand. GBA plus analysis became one of the key pieces of evidence of how the Trudeau government was performing feminism. It is a way of analyzing federal budgets or decisions through a gender-based approach or a gender-based analysis. Each ministry would put forward their recommendations and they would have to explain or link their their priorities to already identified gender-based outcomes. One of the outcomes, for example, is like the full participation of women in the economy. But GBA plus is complicated. And you can imagine when you have all of the ministries trying to corral their recommendations or demands or requests to the Treasury Board through this GBA plus lens, things can get a little bit weird. So, for example, when I was trying to find out how publicly they talk about GBA plus, I found myself at different websites that explain the performance measures of the government and how certain policies were intended to reach them. So here are my words, quote, to find out which of these programs are actually working requires expertise beyond a casually interested activist. One GBA plus promise is to help internationally trained individuals get Canadian equivalent certification. They identify different employment areas that Canada has identified as being critical, promises that the wait time to find out if your credentials are recognized will not surpass a year, and then tells the individual who's looking this information up what education that they will need to supplement their foreign credentials. A roundabout way of saying that there's nothing changing on the recognition side, rather they're simply making it faster for people to find out if their credentials are recognized. And rather than this process being managed by federal government coordinating framework that could streamline this process and where systemic changes could be made centrally, institutions, organizations and corporations are invited to apply for funding so that the government can give them money to develop their own internal guide for foreign credential recognition. Okay, so did you get that? One of the promises under the GBA Plus framework is that people should be able to have their foreign credentials recognized. But rather than doing anything about it, the federal government is going to give money to other jurisdictions or corporations to help them analyze credentials from around the world and determine whether or not they'll be accepted. When racism is one of the key determinants of whether or not something will be accepted, obviously there's a limit to this. It's not actually going to fix the problem. It will throw money to to other jurisdictions or companies to create other processes, but it isn't going to, to actually fix the core issue. Now, the federal government's been doing some kind of gender, gender-based analysis plus since 1995, 
But Justin Trudeau made it a real core of how his government was going to do budgeting. And and journalists talked about it quite a lot. In, in some cases, they often made it sound like this was exclusively something from the liberal government, as if it was brand new. Some of the explainers are very muddled and confusing. Some are straightforward, but it didn't always leave the viewer with the impression of what was the point of GBA plus and that this is something that had actually been around for, for quite a while. When you go to the actual interactive website of the Status of Women Canada to find out what exactly GBA plus is, um, and, and, and this also offers other bureaucrats within government ideas on how to be more inclusive, you'll find readings and checklists and reports and even an online course for public servants to help them elaborate their initiatives through a GBA plus lens. The problem with this, of course, is that it is extremely technical. It will not withstand a conservative government. Obviously, it'll be the stroke of a pen that just wipes out all of the work around GBA plus when the when the conservatives get elected. And even then, was GBA plus all that effective? In the book, I quote Sarah Kaplan, the director of the Institute for Gender and the Economy at the University of Toronto, in an interview that she did with the Huffington Post. And she said, quote, GBA plus, so she said, that's a really impoverished way to do gender-based analysis, because what you should really be doing is analysis on what are the needs out there, what are some of the inequalities, and then design your policy around those issues. And they're not doing that at all. Unquote. Then I continue. So in absence of a coordinated group of feminists who are able to puncture holes into the GBA plus framework and demand that GBA plus delivers real and substantive change to public policies and institutions, it passes as a feminist measure without much scrutiny or opposition. Busy journalists report that the budget is, quote, GBA plus and average people hear that the feminist liberals are doing feminist things. They once again occupy feminism without actually demonstrating the feminist things that they've actually done. (laughs) That last sentence was not a quote. That's just me ranting. So in addition to reformulating feminism to then be something that the liberals can dole out or put programs through uh, when trying to come up with a budget like GBA Plus, there's actually a much deeper problem with how GBA Plus was being used by, by the liberals as a political cudgel. And so in Take Back the Fight, I talk about this situation where the liberal government promised that the Trans Mountain Pipeline would be passed through a gender-based analysis. It was kind of a ridiculous promise that they made. And when they said it, it, it turned some heads, obviously. I went back to look at how it was reported. And I found an article written in October 2017 from The Discourse by Emma Jones, reporting that Natural Resources Canada said that they conducted a GBA plus analysis on both the Trans Mountain Pipeline and the Site C hydroelectric dam. That's a really interesting promise to run two massive projects like the Trans Mountain Pipeline and Site C through a GBA plus analysis. And Emma Jones filed an access to information request to find the details. At the time that the article was written, she didn't have the information back. And so I had to look to continue to see what 
other discussions about GBA plus and environmental destruction and mass energy projects were uh, were happening within the media. In December 2018, Justin Trudeau explained his government's reasoning for why GBA Plus had to be part of the decision to purchase the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Trudeau was quoted as saying, there are gender impacts when you bring construction workers into a rural area. There are social impacts because they're mostly male construction workers. How are you adjusting and adopting to those? That's what the gendered lens in GBA Plus budgeting is all about. That's a pretty interesting way to approach these projects and to think through gender-based analysis plus. And I think that if you are going to run a program through GBA plus like that, you'd probably find that the work is so disbalanced towards men. The impacts are the negative impacts are so disbalanced towards women, whether they are women who see a rise in sexual assault because of man camps or whether it's because women are forced to take care of the kids while their father has to travel long periods of time to work. The balance sheet is not going to come out very favorably for GBA+. In the book, I mention women make up just under 50% of the total labor force, but only work 4.9% of the jobs in construction. So it's a reasonable question that Justin Trudeau poses, except it gets blown out of the water by people like Jason Kenney, who can see through what Trudeau is actually doing here. Because regardless of what GBA Plus is going to say about Trans Mountain, obviously Trudeau was about to buy that pipeline. When I looked to find out if the discourse's freedom of information uh, requests had been posted, because you can actually go and find all of them posted publicly at the, at, uh, the federal website, I couldn't find any records that contained the words Trans Mountain and GBA+. The only request that I could find for documents related to GBA+, was the Site C dam, as uh, Jones had said uh, would happen based on her, on her reporting. And it was completed in 2019 and returned zero results. So here we are with Trudeau talking about the importance of doing GBA+, and then it doesn't actually look like it ever happened. So what then does that do to the public confidence in these kinds of measures? Well, it created a heyday for right-wing politicians who saw that this was just a way for Justin Trudeau to boost up his feminist credentials, but then not actually do anything feminist at all. Not that the conservatives are feminist, but if they're allergic to anything, they're allergic to hypocrisy. Michelle Rempel wrote on Twitter, quote, his assumptions about how work culture of how my province works are dangerously bourgeois, demonstrating that Michelle Rempel does not know what that word means. And Jason Kenney, uh, who had not been elected yet to be pre uh, premier of the province, he wrote on Twitter, quote, Justin Trudeau says pipelines must go through a, quote, gender based analysis, unquote, because male construction workers have, quote, impacts, unquote. Darn right they do. They build things, create wealth, pay taxes and take care of their families. You just hear Jason Kenney really being into that a lot. Journalists covered this mostly with a, a tone of, of sneering at the idea that you can have a GBA plus analysis on these kinds of projects. And when I went through the filing documents for the project, I found that there were 157 conditions for the project to go forward. Among those conditions were several requirements that project coordinators had to consult with indigenous communities along the line's path and ensure that archaeological and cultural heritage protection would be maintained, mitigation of environmental damage related to many animals that were all named. 
None reference women. None reference the gender impact of construction. None mention the gendered impact of constructing a project of this kind specifically that you would imagine would be there had they run it through a GBA plus analysis. So there you have the federal government using a policy tool that is complicated and difficult, but with the pressure of feminist activists and economists and academics or whatever, could be very interesting to ensure that Canada's public policies are being enacted with an eye to the gender-based impact. Except when something as big as Trans Mountain comes along, or like something like Site C, the hydroelectric dam, Gender-Based Analysis Plus becomes nothing more than a PR exercise, and in its wake, it becomes disparaged, it becomes a joke, and it becomes the fuel for the far right to use to just sh- to take pot shots against feminists in general, in this case for being silly or not serious or insulting to the province's men. This is the danger of what happens when governments co-opt labels like feminism. Feminists need to be able to control what feminism means. And when politicians start announcing that something is or isn't feminist, feminist activists find themselves having to actually do a PR campaign and fight against the rhetoric from government about what is or isn't feminist while they're also fighting that government to become feminist Uh, or to to enact feminist policies. It creates a very bizarre situation. And I think that for many of us of a certain age, so people who are born in the 1980s or born in the 1990s, or heaven forbid any of you been born in the 2000s, God bless you, there isn't that history that's obvious of feminist confrontation with government. And in fact, some of us might even have more experience with the government calling themselves feminist than a government that would laugh at the idea that a government could even be feminist. This has completely distorted our understanding of the role that feminists could play in power. And even when there are good feminists in power, and I talk about this in my book, there's a lot of examples of feminist MPs or MLAs or MPPs or MNAs that are trying to get good policies passed, they always fall down when confronted with power of their opposition, usually government power. But even the ones in power find it difficult to pass certain pieces of legislation if their party is skeptical or their leader disagrees. And this is where having a social movement behind you is so critical. The social movement is able to give power to feminist politicians who are trying to operate within the system by giving them the the power outside of parliament to change things. If that power outside of parliament didn't exist, it doesn't matter how many feminists you have in the NDP. We can see this in British Columbia with John Horgan's government. It does not automatically translate into feminist policy. They still need the power of social movement organizing to push them into the right direction. And when they don't have that, then the word gets assumed, co-opted, turned into something weird, made into hypocrisy, and then it becomes a caricature of what it really means. And we find ourselves fighting that caricature more than we're actually fighting the people in power. That's your episode for this week. Take Back the Fight, the podcast was written, hosted, edited, and produced by me, Nora Loretto. The music is by me as well, with the exception of this, which is Garam Chai by General Khan. 
If you like what you hear, make sure that everybody you see over the holidays has listened to at least five episodes of this podcast. Take Back the Fight podcast is funded by Fernwood Publishing, and we are a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network. Be sure to listen to all of Harbinger's left-wing podcasts, and you can find them at www.harbingermedianetwork.com. I'm